when I was a senior, I got a, I got a phone call from my, my long-term girlfriend. We'll call her April because that's what her name was. And uh, she was on senior trip, uh, a trip that I was not on for some reasons. And so she called me and it was like, it was back when there was like cords on the phones. So you have to sort of imagine that me, I grab the phone and I go, I have to go around the corner and then I would go under the dining room table. That was my spot to talk to April on the phone. And I was like, this would be great. Gonna hear from my long-term girlfriend, April. And uh, I'm gonna hear about the trip. This is wonderful. Uh, and she told me when she called me that we needed to break up. And I thought, well, that's not what I was expecting. So I, I very calmly, asked for an explanation for why we needed to break up over the phone during senior trip. And she said, well, here's what happened. Here's what happened. We went to lunch today. The, the senior trip was to Washington, D.C. These days, Washington, D.C. is like a sixth grade trip. For us, it was senior year. So this is like things have accelerated. Things are changing, right? Anyway, for senior year, they went to Washington, D.C., and she apparently had gone to lunch and she had seen this, this street musician. And this uh, street musician was playing the saxophone apparently quite well, a virtuoso. And so she thought to herself, I've got to hear this street musician play music. Um, that's what street musicians do. And she, so she, apparently she kind of went back from lunch, she had some change, and she thought, you know what I'm going to do with this? I'm going to give it to that man who was playing that saxophone. And so apparently she put the, the money in the saxophone case, and the street musician looked up at her and said, you've got a boy back home, don't you? And she said, well, I do. His name is Adam. And, she's, and, and apparently his response was, you think he cares about you, but he's just a drifter. He's just a drifter. And listen, I, I'm not here to make comments about whether or not I'm a drifter. I mean... I do live an, an entire three miles from my childhood home at this point, so <laughs> I've been drifting for a good 25 years. But she took this very hard that the street musician told her I didn't actually care about her, that I was just a drifter and couldn't be trusted. So she resolved in her mind that somehow this, this street musician knew and she needed to break things off, and so she did. Uh, and listen, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that he was like a, a rabbi in his day job or something like really wise. I don't know. There's really a subtle difference between burning sage and being sage. Like it's just, it's very, it's hard to discern. It's tough. People are crying out in the marketplace, and who knows which voice is wise and which voice is unwise. This could have been the most wise street musician of all time. Anyway, it worked out for me. And that, <laughs> that, that sounded very harsh. I did not intend for it to be harsh. But I am pleased with the results. So, but I'm just thinking, like, I, I was just thinking about this moment in my life underneath the dining room table with the phone with the cord and her calling from Washington, D.C., responding to the voice in the marketplace that was the street musician. Uh, because we were in Proverbs, and Proverbs often talks about those who are crying out in the marketplace. And it's true. Wisdom, wisdom does cry out in the marketplace. Just look at Proverbs chapter 9, the way it starts. Uh, it says this, wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. 
She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants. She sent servants out, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. Uh, wisdom is throwing a banquet, and she, she's crying out in the marketplace, come to my house if you're simple. This is kind of a tough moment, a mixed bag. You're invited, that's great, but you're also simple, and you have to recognize that to come, and that's a hard moment. But this is, this is, she's crying out, and that part is, is kind of nice, because you think, good, like I can, just, I can follow that voice. I can, I, can, I can hear it, and I can go that way. Here's the problem. It's not only wisdom crying out. You move down a little bit in the same chapter, chapter 9, and there's another lady inviting you to her banquet. It says this, folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come to my house. It's real confusing. She says the exact same thing. If you're simple, come this way. And here we are, stuck, having to discern between the voice of Lady Wisdom and the voice of Lady Folly. It occurs to me that this is maybe the background of the parable that Jesus is telling in Luke chapter 14. We have to remember that this is the scriptures that Jesus had available, and it's the scriptures that his community would have been steeped in. And as he is speaking to them, he's talking about banquets and, and, a, and a banquet master sending servants out to invite them in. And you'll remember in Luke 14, not everybody comes. Some people are busy. One person bought a cow. You can't be going to a banquet when you just bought a cow. That seems... Un- so you got to be, you know... and so. There are people who just don't come. It occurs to me that in, in some sense, those people who refused to come to Jesus' banquets were going to someone else's banquet instead. A different vision of what a banquet might look like, right? Jesus' banquet that says, let's have all the weary come. Let's have, let's have all those who are downtrodden, those in the, in the back corners, in the back alleyways, let's have them come. And that banquet is, is, is a far-flung feast. But there's other banquets that say the exact opposite. They say things like greed is good. Did you see that movie in the 1980s, right, with Michael Douglas, where he said greed is good, and an entire generation kind of thought, I see what he's, I see what he's getting at, right? And there's these books out there that say, yes, exactly, the elimination of the weak, that's true progress. Not inviting them to the banquet, but making sure that they are completely secluded outside the city gates. There are these different banquets going on. So for us, for us, we have to think deeply about this, that it's not just a banquet we need, because there are lots of banquets out there. We need the founder of the very feast that launched creation. We need to be able to follow after the voice that calls after us. Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. We need to be able to discern in the marketplace and say, this is the banquet, the one where all are welcome. This is the banquet that wisdom set up for us. Like Eric reminded us and, and, and Pastor Mike, that it's wisdom through which God created. That's the banquet we, be, we belong at. And we need more than just the banquet. We need the founder of the feast. Because look, it gets kind of tricky. We're going to need to be 
really humble and listening and teachable because because sometimes it's not that clear and life can be difficult to know which way to turn. We need to be able to hear the voice of the good shepherd and follow after, discerning between that voice and the others, crying out in the marketplace. Look at how tricky it gets. Look at, at, at Proverbs 26. This is verse four and five. These are parables in the sense that you would kind of grow up with this idea, like they're just pithy statements, right? Uh, like Eric taught us, they're, they're probabilities, they're, they're principles, not, not, not promises. But here's what it says in, in uh, chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, and it shows us our need to be connected to the founder of the feast, the one who created through wisdom, it says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. That was verse 4. Here's verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. What? What? Do you see what happened? It said the opposite thing back to back, right? It says the opposite thing back to back. That's kind of tough, because I was hoping, I was hoping I'd be able to sort of just memorize this nugget, you know, say thank you to the teacher, app on the desk, and walk out and do my thing. But now I've got this tough quandary. I've got moments where the right thing to do is to answer the fool according to his folly. And I've got moments where the right thing to do is to stay silent. What to do? What to do? Now, I note that Jesus seemed particularly well positioned to know the difference. Right? I note that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is God's wisdom the very wisdom of God. I note that in John chapter 1, the apostle wants us to understand that it's through Jesus that all was created. Echoing Proverbs chapter 8, through wisdom. Jesus is God's wisdom. I note these things. He seems like the right one to listen to. But I also note that I'm not real sure. I could just as easily be swayed by a street musician who had something to say to me as I pass by. I note I need to be connected to wisdom, not just memorizing wise sayings. There's a sense in which Proverbs is what we might call virtue ethics, not so much about what you memorize and what you know, but instead about who you become. And to become, in this case, the goal, the dream, is to become like Jesus. What Paul says over and over and over again, like he says in Romans chapter 8, it's our destiny to be conformed to his image. Echoing, of course, language from Genesis chapter 1. For us, we're going to have to be humble enough to realize I can't choose the right banquet on my own. And I don't know when to answer the fool and when to stay quiet. I've got to stay connected to wisdom itself. I've got to stay humble enough to know I need to return to him over and over again. Obviously, Proverbs sets wisdom up against folly, but we might say, in a sense, it's also setting humility up against arrogance. 
It's arrogance that dissolves wisdom. Because arrogance says, I don't need the vine anymore. I'm pretty good fruit on my own. It's arrogance that says, I memorized that in school. I'm good. It's arrogance that doesn't take a rebuke. Looking through Proverbs, it says a lot of different times, rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Instruct a wise person, he'll become even more wise. But rebuke a fool, he'll hate you. Notice that sense of I have to be humble enough to receive it. Going back to that picture that John uses in John chapter 15, when he, when he tells us what Jesus taught in the, in, the, in the days leading up to the crucifixion, he said, listen, remain in me. Even, even in the pruning, even when there's moments where we're cutting out the branches that aren't bearing fruit, be humble enough, wise enough to, to let me help you become what you were meant to be. Let go of those things and stay in it. Stay in connection to the very teacher, to the very source of wisdom. This is the wisdom of God, Jesus, present to us, the source of wisdom to us. So we stay in it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's also its end, its very goal. The fear of the Lord, which is, which is like a catchphrase for saying reverence, a, a, a life of allegiance to the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but now wisdom points me right back to that same place of reverence and allegiance to the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning and the end of wisdom. Just ask Solomon or the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes. A person who went after all kinds of banquets and remembered finally in the end, the only banquet worth being at, the founder of the feast. So we have to stay connected to, to realize that our wisdom can only ever be a reflection of the wise teacher. Can only be reflective of the character of God. Wisdom is a characteristic of God that we have the privilege of reflecting into creation, but it does not come from us. It is not ours. This is why it's so disastrous to be wise in your own eyes. This turns out to be one of the more scathing statements in the entire Old Testament, saying they were wise in their own eyes, echoing, certainly echoing the, the, the moments that Adam and Eve chose to try to have knowledge of good and evil apart from God. They were wise in their own eyes. This is the judgment you see at the very last sentence of the book of Judges. Israel was going off the rails. It was disastrous. They were unjust. They were worshiping the wrong things. They were attending all the wrong kinds of banquets. And we find out at the very end, it's because they were wise in their own eyes. Not staying, not staying connected to the source of wisdom. Not being content to be reflective of God's wisdom, but instead trying to define it for themselves. This is disastrous. To be disconnected from God that way. To be so arrogant as to blind us to our need for his wisdom to walk us through the streets of this world and to discern which voice is from Lady Wisdom and which voice is from Lady Folly. We need a good guide. We can't settle for being blind and leading the blind. 
We need the one who opens the eyes of the blind rather than just being wise in our own eyes. It is disastrous to disconnect yourself from the source of wisdom. Even Friedrich Nietzsche knew it. He's very famous for saying God is dead. He's actually quite happy with the idea that humanity would unhitch its wagon from the idea of God, but he knew it had consequences. He knew it couldn't be taken lightly. He knew that if we untethered ourselves from God, there would be a very disorienting stage of history. In fact, in the very famous passage where he wrote the phrase, God is dead, he said this. He said, who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What does the horizon do? It orients us. We know what's up, what's down. What were we doing when we unchanged this earth from the sun, that thing that orients us our day and our night as we circle it, counts the years? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though, as though through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? This is his description of disconnecting humanity from God. He knew it had consequences, even though he only thought of God as an idea and not as a reality in which the universe is held, not in, uh, not in uh, the, the source of all good things, the, the, the character which all good things come from. He understood that this would be painful. To disconnect yourself from God is to be directionless, unwise. Yeah, we're free to choose which banquet to go to. You're free to go to the banquet that says there is no God. As Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You're free to go to that banquet. You are free to be wise in your own eyes. Absolutely. But it's disastrous. We need to stop asking ourselves so much about what we're free to do and more about what will set us free. There are many things you are free to do. Only a few will set you free. It's for freedom you were set free. Freedom in Christ. Following after the voice of the good shepherd to the banquet that's worth attending. Connected to the vine that produces good fruit in us. That helps us to become who we were always meant to be. That's what freedom looks like. Sometimes freedom even looks like hard work. Here's, here's a summary of what the prophets would say is freedom. Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. I think we could, we could put in there, he has shown you what will set you free. He has shown you what freedom looks like. He has shown you what the wise banquet is like experientially, what it's like in its orientation, what it's like in its posture. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. This is actually what freedom looks like. 
again, surely an echo of the garden where they would walk in the cool of the evening with their God when they still trusted him and his vision for wisdom. Yes, wisdom has been active from the very beginning, just like we saw in Proverbs 8. And in wisdom, we were created in his image to be free and to set others free. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, such a famous passage where we learn that God made us in his image, in his likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are given dominion is a word that some translations use. But of course, this dominion can only ever be a delegated version of God's dominion. Wisely employed, it is a reflection of God's kingship. Wisely employed, it's a reflection of God's character. This is actually the very thing that many scholars talk about what it means to be made in his image, is to be the angled mirror of creation. You know what an angled mirror does. It helps you to see around corners so bikes don't collide into each other on the bike path, right? The angled mirror reflecting God's character into creation, not the least of which would be his characteristic of wisdom. But if we think about what is it that we get the privilege of reflecting into creation by bearing God's image, if we only looked at Genesis 1, we would see this beautiful idea that to bear his image, to reflect his character into creation is to bring our gifts to bear creatively on the world, to, to bring order out of chaos. Think through the Rolodex of Genesis 1 in your mind in the way that God separated the night from the day, bringing order, the way God separated the waters, the way, the way God brought dry land. All of these things bringing order to chaos, what does it mean to bear his image? It means to join him in bringing order into chaos, to make a safe place for people to flourish. That's what God is doing in creation. In Genesis 2, this very same image, it says, listen, the land was wild and waste, but God created Eden, a word that means delight. And then he put a garden in the middle of Eden. And then he rested human beings in the middle of the garden because they could flourish there. He actually says, he rested them there so they could work. Part of our flourishing is getting to do the work, to do the gardening that actually expands the garden so that more people can be there too. Make a banquet for people from all corners, all distances and directions. This is what it means to reflect God into creation to, to utilize tools like government to say, we'll make order out of the chaos of this world by bringing government to bear, or economy, or a legal system, or agriculture. All of these things bringing order out of chaos, which is exactly what wisdom itself does. This world can seem, seem chaotic. There's Lady Folly on the corner inviting me to a banquet. There's the woman who's wisdom on the corner who's inviting me to a banquet. How am I to make sense of this? Only wisdom 
Only wisdom can help me to make sense of this. And God, who is wisdom, invites me to walk with him in doing it. He's always been inviting us. The verbs themselves in Genesis chapter 1 are, in a sense of vocabulary, they're invitations. You see the phrase, let there be. It's in the form of vocabulary. It's called a jussive. It means you have a choice, but here's the right choice. You're free, but this will set you free. It's like if I saw you on the street and I said, party at my house Friday night. I'm going to see you there. I'm going to see you there on Friday. And I act as though you have no choice. You, of course, have a choice. You're free to attend some other banquet. But it's this banquet that will set you free. The wise banquet that's making a safe place for people to be. Bringing order to the chaos. Yes, just think about what Scripture says about what it means to be queens and kings. It says we were made to rule. This sounds scary because we've heard of rulers who are tyrannical, who are unwise. We've heard of rulers who make banquets who are only for their own good. But that's not the kind of banquet that the true king throws. Look, for instance, at Psalm 145. David, King David, writes about the king, God, and says, listen, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all the generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises, faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Yes, God as king invites us into a banquet worth being at, inviting people from the back streets and the alleyways and from the far-flung countries saying, come here, be safe at home with me. Just like he did with Adam and Eve when he rested them in the garden to work and the first command he gave them is said, look around, have a ball, enjoy. There's fruit of all kinds to eat from. It would be wise to lean into those fruits and to have a banquet with them. Just trust me. Don't be wise in your own eyes. That fruit's not good for you. That fruit disconnects you from me. That fruit makes you wise in your own eyes, and it will be disastrous. You see, God has always been throwing a banquet. He has a heart of hospitality. And so what does a true queen or king do? Throw a banquet. Look at Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a coronation hymn. What that means is it's sung when the king, in this case for Israel, only kings, is coronated. It's telling us what their dream for the king is, what a king, king should look like. We might say what a wise king is like. Here's what it says. Endow the king with your justice, O God. Notice it says your justice. Our justice is only ever truly a reflection of his justice. Endow your royal son with your righteousness. In the image of God, we reflect his righteousness into creation. By the way, righteousness is a word that makes zero sense outside of relationship. One is not righteous in a vacuum. You can be righteous at a banquet. When you invite others into community, into the safe place, you can be righteous because righteousness means right relationships. It means all things fixed and firmly as they should be in relationship. 
One cannot be righteous in a vacuum. It says, may he judge the king. They're praying for the king now. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones, with justice. This is the reflection. What a wise king will be like. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious in, is their blood in his sight. Notice how the language is even reflective between Psalm 145, who is about the true king, and Psalm 72 about God's representatives, his image bearer on earth. Yes, the wise king reflects the characteristics of God, including wisdom. And Proverbs agrees. For instance, Proverbs 21, verses 1 through 3 says, listen, the Lord's hand, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that channels towards the people. In the, in the Lord's hand, with the Lord's guidance, the king doesn't keep the water for himself, but digs an irrigation ditch so that it will go out into the countryside so that the people can garden and so that the people can flourish, so that the garden will expand and the banquet will be even busier than before. That's what it looks like when the king's reflecting the kingship of God, wisely doing so. Yeah, a person may think they're right, may think their own ways are right. They may be wise in their own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To be wise in your own eyes is something you're free to do, but it does not set you free. And it's disastrous to be disconnected from the vine who is wisdom. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Micah 6, 8. Did we not just read that? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Humbly recognize we can't have our own wisdom. Humbly recognize that I can't be righteous in a vacuum. Humbly recognize that I get invited into the banquet and it's my joy to invite others too. Kind of like what it says in Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, which is addressed to a king, by the way, a mother to her son who is going to be king. She says, listen, remember these things. Remember what it would look like to be a wise ruler. He says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. She says, for the rights of all who are destitute, speak up, judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Bring order to this chaotic world for them. All the work that we get to do, all of this work which is reflective of the God who works, the God who creates, the God who brings order to chaos, it's our privilege to get to do the same. Are you a mechanic? There can be no other way to more profoundly bring order to the chaos of someone's life. Have your car ever broken down? How chaotic is that in your life? And you finally get your car to the mechanic and they fix it and it's just so nice because you turn the key, it does what it's supposed to do. You push on the pedal and it goes. Just orderly like, right? This is what the joy of the mechanic is, to bring order to the chaos of that person's life. The lawyer, the doctor. It's real chaotic when mama gets sick, right? There's no banquet if mom's sick. But the doctor steps in and brings order to that chaos. 
restoring health so that others can be invited to this banquet, which otherwise might have been limited. The limiting factors of energy and health and resources, and we're bringing order to that. That's our privilege. That's the work we get to do. That's the thing that sets us free. It's, it's, it's to join Jesus in his work. We're free to go to other banquets, but it sets us free to invite others to God's. So we must recognize that there are multiple voices calling out for our allegiance. There's multiple banquets calling for our attention, but there's only one banquet that's wise to attend. And at that banquet, it's not the banquet we need, but the founder of the feast. Wisdom is not something we can carry out the door with us unless it's that the Spirit of God has gone with us. We must stay connected to the vine, even as he prunes the branches that, stare, uh, that, that bear no fruit. Wisely, at the feast, at the banquet, sitting at the feet of the founder of the feast, we stay humble. We refuse to be wise merely in our own eyes, in a vacuum, in an echo chamber. No matter how many people might follow us, being wise in our own eyes is disastrous. Instead, we choose again and again, we freely choose to reflect true wisdom into the world. We join God in bringing order to the chaos as he so wisely does. And we do the work of setting things right according to his wise vision of life. And in doing this, we expand the garden and we invite people to the feast, that lady wisdom that God himself is throwing. We invite them to the banquet. We make a place where others can flourish, a place reflective of the wise heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have often thought of ourselves as wise. And other times, we have mistaken foolish voices for wisdom itself. But we're humble enough to know that we need to walk with you, reflect your characteristics. It's your wisdom, your righteousness, your justice that we're so privileged to reflect into the world. What a joy to be at the feast with you that you have made possible, that you have set before us and before our enemies, even in difficult times, this feast that you set before us. It's our joy to join you in making the table longer and inviting others to join in as well, to experience your heart, your wise, good, just heart. Lord, we pray for for more of you reflected through us and into this world. And we pray those things in your son's name. Amen.